Hi, I'm Dr John Coyne. I'm the head of the Border Security Program at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, and I would like to welcome you to our latest podcast, Big Data in National Security. I'm lucky to have with me here today Michael Chee. And Michael has been undertaking a six-month project for the Australian Strategic Policy Institute examining big data and national security. Welcome, Michael. Hi, John. Michael, look, right from the start, I'm going to ask you this. So much that has been said about big data and national security in our country and indeed globally across everything from, you know, the front of major magazines, um, you know, to conspiracy theorists, etc. We've heard that it's the key to our future, that it's going to order my coffee for me. Um, there's in plain English, what is this big data thing about? Absolutely. So, yeah, there's a lot of stuff in the media about it and a lot of the attention has been on the promise it has. That's a really valuable part of the discussion, but just going back a little bit, big data really started as a problem for most companies, government agencies, scientific researchers. It started as a problem of the traditional ways in which we captured that information, put it in databases, stored it, tried to analyze it. They weren't really meeting the demand of what the information needed in order to be properly analyzed. So that was a problem that a lot of companies were facing about five, 10 years ago. Increasingly, they've developed a bunch of solutions that can increasingly manage this data and analyze it, enabled ways of automatically tracking things, of automatically building predictive models, and of building systems which can automatically assess a lot of data and find trends for you, instead of having one person go through and test out every single variable and game everything out to the nth degree. So that's enabled a lot of these new technologies like in autonomous vehicles, like in automatic customer tracking, advertising, and like you said, ordering coffee, and a lot of other functions where it makes an assessment based off it without a human necessarily having to guide the algorithm for the entire process. Look, let's go back a few steps, and I'm struck by, uh, I mean, we've been talking um, here about data. 1990, you know, we have you know, Commodore 64 computers, uh, you know, in the home, first time. All of a sudden, then we're saying, oh, you know, we've got big, a lot of data. Um, over the time, we keep on getting bigger computers. So, for instance, you know, I was going to use the example of digital cameras, but, you know, a lot of people are now using phones. But the point is, is that, you know, the amount of data we have is increasing. So, is big data itself isn't a new problem, though, is it? Yeah, absolutely not. I mean, there's been a lot of arguments made, which I personally absolutely agree with, that people have been dealing with their own data problems forever and ever. That's why we invented writing. That's why we invented books and then, in turn, invented a printing press and, in turn, punch cards and computers. So... That's something people have been dealing with. We've always been trying to figure out there's a lot of information out in the world. How do we get it in a way that we understand that we can grapple with and then measure and then manage? Yep. So in that sense, there's definitely merit to that. And I think the good thing now is that there are a lot of things which take it beyond just us getting things, wrangling it into a scheme that we understand and putting it on a piece of paper to now, once it's in a database, we can actually do a lot more things with it than necessarily just have a human look at it. That's the difference here. There is kind of another dimension to what these new big data capabilities are offering that really wasn't that visible in previous things like even with the Commodore 64, even with the internet in the early 2000s. These, these are quite new technologies and quite new approaches. But it's still a data problem though, isn't it? That's what we're about. I mean, the initial part, not the analysis part, but the initial part is a data problem in the sense that so, you know, last year's big data problem is this year's business as usual. Oh, yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah. But, I mean, <clears throat> you talked a little bit about it, but, you know, what is the difference between the hype and the reality of, of what we're talking about here? So, you know, like, like how much is sort of out there, bleeding edge or even beyond technology, and how much of it is just really, you know, what we need right now? Yeah, I think that's a pretty valuable concern to have about any technology. Almost every technology goes through its own hype cycle, and that's been characteristic of every development that's come out. And big data's definitely got a lot of hype in its own. You can just even see it in the name. Data, that's big, it's a big deal. There's a lot of hype in there. And there's kind of two elements to that hype. The first element is the idea that big data can do a lot more than maybe it actually can, or maybe it reasonably can. So there's this idea out there that uses of big data and analysis of big data can be undertaken completely automatically. You can just chuck everything in a computer. It can do a lot of things for you and you don't really need to manage it so much and you don't need to invest in the, the humans and the people and the analytical pipeline to get insights from that data. And that's not at all true. And humans are still gonna be a very important part of the process, asking proper questions, conducting considered research analysis. That's all gonna be a very important part. The good thing about big data is it does offer ways of speeding up that process or collating information automatically for you or tracking through reams of information, indexing it, tagging it, and making it all much more accessible to you as a researcher or as an analyst. So Michael, we've, we've talked a little bit about, um, about this big data thing now. Can you actually give me a concrete example in a national security sense or even in uh, another application of what, what you're considering is actually big data today? I think probably the best example of big data today is anything which is integrating information together for you. So, let's uh, have you got an example? Sure. So, one of the examples most listeners might be really familiar with is Google Maps. So, the way Google Maps works, particularly that function where it shows you where traffic is on roads and highways, um, actually the way that works is every single smartphone that's currently connected to Google Maps or is connected to Google self-reports its location. And then Google Maps then takes all that data of self-reported cell phone data or mobile phone data and it puts it together and it assesses that on this particular patch of road there's a lot of people with smartphones reporting so that might be a traffic jam or there might be significant traffic there. Whereas other locations where there aren't any mobile phones reporting that data, there might not be that many cars there or there aren't any people driving cars that use Google phones. But the point is because there are enough Google phones out there and there are enough users of Google Maps out there, it's a fairly reliable indicator that if we take a look for these smartphone signatures on these bits of road, that is actually going to be fairly representative of how many actual cars are there and how much traffic there is there. So that's one really good example of what um, information integration can do for you by stitching together lots of little bits of data and building something more complex out of that. Uh, another example of that is when they use satellite imagery. So rather than relying on self-reporting data from smartphones or GPSs, uh, there's this company which takes a look at masses of satellite imagery and checks in parking lots to see how many cars there are over a period of time. And from that, they found a way to fairly reliably assess how much thoroughfare that particular shopping center is getting, therefore how many customers might they be getting, and how much revenue they might be making. And they've built up models using training and performance and testing to figure out that given X amount of cars, we can reliably predict there's going to be Y amount of revenue or within a band of that amount of revenue. And they've also taken that and applied it on a larger spectrum in the case of taking a look, taking a look at vast swaths of, say, agrarian landscapes or industrial landscapes and looking for farms and looking for factories and then 
doing that on a much wider scale than just cars and parking lots and shopping centres. Um, taking it back to, a, I guess, an intelligence and national security application, um, you know, days gone by, we, we turn around and say, well, intelligence collection is very focused. Uh, it's about getting the right information there at the right time that's going to give you the right answers or at least reduce the uncertainty for decision makers. There seems to be a growing school of thought that somehow, um, you know, that now we're entering a stage where, and especially if you read all, all the latest journals, etc., that we're sort of in this, you know, sucking as much information as possible and that, the, you know, we press the little red button and the little red button will, will shoot out all of this sort of, this is what the information tells us and all the relationships. I mean, is that science fact or science reality or is it what we can expect from this? Look, yeah, I think um, that's not entirely realistic. It might be what we're aiming for, but it's very much a vision rather than reality. And even if it was something that's technically feasible, it's highly unlikely that our national security agencies and the community are empowered to do that. They're not allowed to automatically suck up every last little bit of data from every database to you without a warrant. So there are safeguards in place that would restrict from them from doing that. But talking about it purely from kind of the perspective of an, an analyst sitting at a desk and how easy it would be for them to automatically go through all this big data. It won't just be one. Unfortunately, they will need a team of people who have gone and made a lot of pipelines from all these different sources of data and started bringing them together. And the analysts at the table is still going to have to go in through these different feeds and start stitching together their own product. And, you know, the traditional collection analysis to assessment process is going to be shortened and a lot of steps are going to be a lot easier to do, and there's going to be a lot less error. Your information is going to be integrated. You'll be able to conduct predictive analysis a lot more easily and a lot more automatically, and you'll be able to discover new types of knowledge and insights a lot more effectively because you can just kind of take that inductive process and automate it instead of having to go through every last little individual branch of that decision tree yourself. But even though you can automate these things, you're still the one, or the person sitting at the desk is still the one who needs to direct this and make decisions about what's a good type of analysis, what's inappropriate, what falls afoul of warrant, warranted collection requirements, and other things. And so there's a lot of details that still are yet to be resolved, either technically, organizationally, or legally, that mean it's not just going to be a big red button that you press yep. in order to find the terrorists. Now, you talked a lot there about, um, about the issue of, oh, I guess, of automation and automation of searches and linking. Is, is there a problem with that, though? Like, and, you know, are we talking about, like, how opaque will these automatic processes be and, and how much should we rely on them? Yes, that's a really tricky thing, and I think it's one of the most interesting parts of what's happening in the big data and the AI space as well. Uh, so one of the biggest things that computer scientists and artificial intelligence researchers have been finding when they've been developing algori algorithms which automatically find correlations and trends is that generally there's no good way to explain why that correlation is there. All they really look at is the numbers and the strength of the connection, and they can give you a certainty with which that strength or correlation has been made. But taking it to the other side of the debate where a human has to kind of come up with a qualitative reason or mechanism or causative explanation for why that correlation is there, that's still something that a human needs to conduct, and it's quite difficult to try and extract that kind of qualitative analysis out of what's happening inside these algorithms. And there's a really good example of that, of something that happened in the 90s, where this hospital in the US started deploying a couple of algorithms to 
go in and automatically start triaging people, which is a pretty classic data problem where a nurse at a triage station has to look at a patient, take a look at the symptoms, listen to what they say their medical history is, and then make an assessment about whether they need to go to emergency room, intensive care, just sit and wait for a GP. Um, so taking imperfect information and making a prediction from that, that's something a nurse traditionally had to do. So they thought they could apply algorithms to do this for them. And they tried that, and it was quite useful. But one of the problems they found was that the neural network they used automatically found an association between people who were suffering from pneumonia and also had asthma tend to have really, really good rates of survivability and recovery. And therefore, they assigned those people with pneumonia and asthma a lower risk rating, one of the lowest, actually. And just looking at it from a human point of view, you know that's absolutely not the case. If you have pneumonia and asthma, that's a serious complication and a serious condition that a doctor would traditionally send you straight to the ICU for. And that's what doctors were doing. Doctors would hear these two conditions and go, look, you need the maximum amount of medical attention we can offer you. We're going to put you straight in the ICU or the emergency room. And that's why they had such good survivability rates, because they were getting the best attention possible. But as a result of that, the data that came out in aggregate after that indicated that these people were surviving more and doing better. That was, in fact, a product of human considered decision analysis. But what the data saw and what the data analysis algorithm saw was simply this correlation that if they have these two conditions, it looks like they're not going to die or they're not going to get serious complications, so lower risk category. And it took a really kind of retrospective considered human analysis coming in afterwards to catch that. And honestly, they didn't think they were likely to catch those kinds of things happening consistently. So they decided to scrap that neural network model and stick with a more simple linear rules-based model for assessing and triaging patients because that idea of being able to have transparency and go back through and review these kinds of decisions was really important to them. And the fact that this almost happened uh, was, a, was considered an unacceptable risk. And that's something that's going to continue to plague any kind of algorithmic or AI-based system in any functional capacity today. And it's going to be quite difficult to manage because algorithms are getting so much more complicated, so much more sophisticated. They're using reams of more data and mu much more complex parallel hardware than ever before. And we're just still the same people trying to go back through and impose an explanation on top of that. Okay, so are there other risks other than that, though, associated with this sort of big data change or this paradigm shift towards big data? So one of the key ones I'd say would be the adversarial element. So once you put a system in like this in place, what is your adversary or opponent going to do? And whether that's a state-sponsored actor, whether that's a person just looking to disrupt for the sake of it, fun, or to expose flaws. So I think adversarial examples are a pretty good indication of what some of the risks might be. So a couple of researchers from Google in the US have found that in machine vision systems specifically, which rely on the same kind of data analysis and artificial intelligence capabilities as a lot of uh, programs out there, that certain images, if perturbed is the word they used, if they were perturbed slightly, so if they input a couple of digital uh, pixels here and there, randomized noise, then these pictures, which look exactly the same to us, so a picture of a panda still looks like a panda, but it's got these one or two pixels changed, something in that would trigger a completely different association in the machine vision algorithm, and it would suddenly think it's a gibbon with 96% certainty, or it would see a stop sign with a couple of holes in it, and it wouldn't classify it as a stop sign anymore. And there was this really interesting case of this autonomous car, which was being driven out, and this person decided to just lay out 
a salt circle around it while it was driving. And it saw the salt circle. And because it looks like a white line, it was like, oh, this looks like the lane line on the side of the road. I'm about to drift off. That's what the machine was thinking. Off the side of the road, I need to stop. And then effectively, they just use this kind of salt rune or circle around this car to make it stop in its tracks entirely. And it's this kind of idea of what's been termed a data diet vulnerability, where the data being input into the algorithm is accounts for the majority of why it makes that decision. That's a pretty big vulnerability that can be used to disrupt these algorithms. And you can introduce a lot of really bad data into an algorithm to entirely disrupt its, its function. So not just with the machine vision, but also with things like malware clustering analysis, if you introduce a couple of examples that just really expose that vulnerability and introduce a lot more ambiguity between what's good and what's bad, then all of a sudden, and even if you've only poisoned 30% of the database or the data set used by the algorithm, that algorithm begins to cease to function or begins to start making a lot more false positive or false negative errors than previously. Now, Michael, you spent six months doing your research, um, writing Aspie's report on this, uh, developing a, a web-based resource uh, for policymakers and the general public. Uh, is there one key message, though, from all of this that people need to understand around big data security or big data in national security? Yeah, absolutely. I think that message would be that big data requires big governance. If we're going to use this capability, we need to have a lot of systems in place to make sure it's used correctly. We need to be able to go back and check what's been done, both by the people using it and by the algorithms and the automated systems that we're using to manage it. And we need to be able to make decisions about how best we're going to tweak things or upgrade things, replace things, and really change our way of doing business. Because big data doesn't just require a change in technology. It requires a change in the way we do things. So that's something that needs to be considered a lot more carefully as big data technologies increasingly become deployed in the national security community. Look, thank you very much, Michael, for going through and exploring a little bit about the hype and the reality of big data and national security. Um, I've been speaking to Michael Chi. His report, Big Data in National Security, uh, Strategic Insights, uh, is going to be released on the 3rd of August. At the same time, we'll be releasing ASPE's online Big Data and National Security resource, which goes into a lot more detail about the risks, vulnerabilities and developments of big data and national security. You've been listening to an ASPE podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for your time, John.